Well, here's the understatement of the day. Life has been interrupted. <laughs> and tonight we're gonna see something. I've, I find the parallels interesting, the way the Lord applies things in different seasons. You can study through the Bible a million times and you're gonna come up with a million different applications as you make your way through. There's one interpretation, one truth, one actual literal word of God, and we study that, but then the applications to our lives just, just flow. And so here we are in this season, and we were bumping along pretty good all the way until about mid-March, and all of a sudden now we're 30 days into quarantine and life is interrupted. If you didn't get sick in the first week or two, it was kind of fun. It's like free vacation, you got sick, there was nothing fun about it. By the way, praise the Lord, a dear friend of mine who I mentioned, I think in a word bite or a teaching recently, dear friend who was on a ventilator down in Seattle, came off the ventilator and is going home tonight. So our God is a healer and he is at work. And I, I am just, that's just a, a praise, a personal praise that I was so glad to hear this afternoon. But we are in the midst of a major interruption to lifestyle and behavior and, and social gathering. And the whole, it's just, it's a strange time. Again, major understatement. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But what's interesting to me is that we have to hit the pause button even in our study. I'm not talking about the Passion Week or leading up to Resurrection Sunday. But if you're tracking with us through Genesis, in chapter 37, We'll be in chapter 38 tonight, but in chapter 37, we saw the beginning of the 11th and final toldot. That is the, the generations or the what became of Jacob. 11 toldotes in Genesis, and the last one is this what became of Jacob, the generations of Jacob, and it starts in chapter 37 and runs us to the end of the book. But it specifically hones in on Joseph. So chapter 37, we get into the life of this young man, Joseph, and his you know, dysfunctional relationship with his brothers, how he's just being honest and truthful before them, sharing his dreams, and they just hate him. And we track through that, and this beloved son, his story is one of the more beloved stories in the Bible. But suddenly, rather than continuing on with Joseph, we come to a major interruption. A, a, an abrupt departure in the narrative of Joseph's story. You may recall that we left Joseph, and this was back before we had the goings-on of last week and the teachings having to do with Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Prior to that, we had to leave off. Joseph was sold by his brothers to Midianite or Ishmaelite slavers. As they came through, some of the brothers wanted to kill him. Judah had this brilliant idea, hey, let's sell him off make some money on the deal, and we still get rid of him. And so the very last verse of chapter 37 says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, captain of the bodyguard. But then verse one of chapter 38 says, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Okay, what? Wait, we're talking about Joseph. This is an interruption, an abrupt departure from the story that we just started into. J. Vernon McGee, I like what he says. He says, this chapter seems to be about as necessary as a fifth leg on a cow. I like that. It's been called one of the worst 
chapters in the Bible. I mean, to make matters worse, not only do we depart from the story that we had just gotten into, but this departure is into a really vile area. The storyline tonight, parents just letting you know, is unquestionably TVMA. So you might wanna plug some little ears. And, and some may wonder, why is Genesis 38 in the word of God at all? Why this abrupt departure, or as Derek Kidner puts it, a rude interruption of the Joseph story, but one that serves other purposes very well. Again, a rude interruption of the story of Joseph, but one that serves other purposes, divine purposes, very well. And I'm reminded that Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture. So there's nothing in this word that is not intentional from a divine perspective. There's nothing in the Bible, not a verse, not a chapter, not a book, that isn't here without God's blessing and his desire for us to study it. So we're gonna take this abrupt departure of chapter 38, and we're gonna discover that it reveals some indispensable truths in the generations of Jacob. So you've got Jacob, and then he has his 12 sons, right? And among those sons is Joseph, who we began with in chapter 37, but now we break off and we start to look at Judah. Now, this, this interruption, as I've called it, this departure, chapter 38, does a few things for us. And some of them, I'm gonna wait until we're done to explain to you, but a couple right up front, it creates literary suspense. <laughs> so if you like a good novel, this is like a well-written novel. You get into the story, and just when you wanna see what's gonna happen here, you're launched over here and you gotta deal with something else. And you just wanna get back to the original story. And you'll kinda feel that, perhaps, in chapter 38, as the life of Joseph hangs in the balance, we gotta hear about Judah, his brother. But it also serves as a piece of tribal history that settles the question of seniority within the family line of Judah. That is, who's in position of firstborn? Because we gotta follow that out. We're just starting with chapter 38 to realize something significant with a different brother than Joseph, with Judah. And it's a line that tracks all the way down. Well, I don't wanna get ahead of myself, but if you know the word, you know who comes of the line of Judah. He's called the Lion of Judah. We'll get there. Chapter 38 also, interestingly, juxtaposes the purity of Joseph that we'll get to in chapter 39 the innocence we see in chapter 37 and the purity we'll see in chapter 39 is juxtaposed against the common carnality of Canaan. Chapter 38 is a seedy, sordid story of sexual sin. <laughs> I'm laughing because I came home from study last Friday night, Good Friday, and I was talking with my dear wife, Cheryl, and she said, you know, you are having a tendency lately to over-alliterate. You sometimes can over-alliterate in your teaching. So I need to give you all a response to my lovely wife. I say to her, my astute and adroit alliterations are adapted to articulating the advancement of acute awareness for all who are attentively attuned. 
Now, chapter 38 speaks to a couple more things that we'll get to at the end tonight, so hold on for those. Some things that will become very clear as to why this chapter is here. But verse one says, it came about at that time, so at the time that Joseph has just been sold into slavery, Joseph probably 17 years old or so, 17, 18 years old, sold off by his brothers. At that time, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Hira. Judah departed. Hone in on those two words for a moment. Judah departed. This is the abrupt departure to which I've been alluding in chapter 38. Two words that seem harmless enough. All the brothers were together, taking care of their sheep, and then Judah departed. He just went somewhere else for a bit. But in reality, Judah's departure sets up the sleazy story that is about to follow. The word departed in the Hebrew is yered. And yered means to go down, to bring down, or to fall down on one's face. Translated differently, Judah went down. Judah fell down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common is as common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I love the word from Paul there. You can flee idolatry. You can run from sin. And by the way, idolatry there is sexual immorality or related to sexual immorality, and I will explain that as we go. Flee from it, run from it. Why? Because no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God will provide the escape. God will provide the way out. You can trust him that the, the temptation is not too much for you. You don't have to give in to sin. We do, tragically, especially when we think we stand, that's when we fall, but we don't have to. It's a perfect companion passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, to the story before us in Genesis 38 tonight. Because Genesis 38 is all about falling, it's about temptation, it's about idolatry, and it ultimately is about escape, as you'll see. You may notice that Judah, when he went down, Judah departed, Judah fell flat on his face, you might say, that Hira, the Adulamite, is there. Hira, his name means noble race. Noble race. An Adulamite is someone who lives in Adullam. He's a Canaanite. And so this man, the noble race, Hira, is apparently a friend of Judah. And Hira never does anything wrong in chapter 38. He, he never sins. He, you don't see any wrongdoing on his part in the story, but he always seems to be there when Judah goes down. There are people like that in your life. There are people like that who always seem to be there when sin happens. Oh, man, they're not sinning. They're not doing the wrong thing, but they have a way of walking with you just to the edge and then you fall. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's not an old wives' statement. You know, it's a truism. 
that bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, Paul writes. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Listen to that. That last line, some have no knowledge of God. Here's the thing. When you hang with the world, the, the heroes, the Adulamites of the world, guess what? The world doesn't share the same values in Christ Jesus. The world can't share those values because it has no knowledge of God. And when you don't have knowledge of God, you don't have that moral base. So if I'm hanging out with someone of no moral base, someone of no knowledge of God, they're not gonna think twice about going right to the edge or into sin. It, it, it doesn't make sense to someone who has no knowledge of God. And so bad company corrupts good morals. And Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I'll tell you, he seeks to devour believers. The non-believer, who cares? I'm talking from a demonic perspective. Who cares as long as he's a non-believer, good. He's lost, but the believer, I'm gonna bite, I'm gonna snap, I'm gonna roar, I'm gonna try and make him fearful. I'm at least gonna try and shut him down. Again, from Satan's perspective, be aware of this. Again, Paul says, stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And Peter says, be aware, be on the alert, be of sober spirit because the devil is after you. And one way the devil devours faith is by getting believers like Judah to align with non-believers like Hera who have no knowledge of the one true God and therefore do not share the same values and therefore invite the Judas into regions of sin. Again, maybe I'm making more out of it than I should, but Hera's there every time Judah falls in this story. He's an Adulamite. Adulam is a Canaanite city south-southwest of, of Jerusalem, ultimately in the territory that would coincidentally belong to Judah. 800 years later, you Bible students might recall that David would hide out from Saul in what's called the Caves of Adulam, so the same region. Right now, it's just Canaan's land. And Judah has gone down, he's fallen down, he's departed from his brothers and he's gone out into the land of Canaan. Remember when Dinah did that? Back in Genesis 34? Dinah, the little sister of Judah, she wandered out and ended up raped. She wandered out and ended up with a major problem for the family at that time staying in Shechem. You'd think somebody in the family would have learned from that, but now Judah goes down. Verse two. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now her name is not Shua. The Canaanite's name is Shua. Her father's name is Shua. This daughter simply remains unnamed in the story and in the Bible. Shua is her father. And so Judah saw her, apparently wanted her because he took her and went into her, and that's soft, nice, Biblical language for he slept with her. And verse three, so she conceived and bore a son and, she, and he named him Ur. And I don't know, but where'd the wedding take place? Cheryl and I will joke about this. We'll be watching a show or something and then next thing you know, a couple in the show will 
they'll often sleep together or somehow the woman ends up pregnant. Whoa, how, how did that happen? And, and we'll say, well, apparently they didn't have enough uh, film to put the marriage part in there. Where's the wedding? She conceived and bore him a son and he named him Ur. <laughs> what a great name. What should we name him? Ur, okay. <laughs> she named him Ur, which by the way means watchman. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan, which means strong. She bore still another son and named him Shalah, which means weak. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Just for note, Chazib is a little township and Chazib means false. <laughs> Weird. So he's gone down with his friend Hira. He meets this girl. She doesn't even have a name. We don't know who she is. Her dad's name is Shua. And she has these three sons for Judah in the town of False. Shua, again, is the father's name. Shua means wealth. Uh, this is not the daughter's name. Um, you'll see her listed later, 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 3, says the sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by Bathsheba, the Canaanitess. Oh, so it's Bathsheba. No, Bat in the Hebrew simply means daughter. So once again, daughter of Shua. Bathsheba just means daughter of Shua. So she's an unnamed girl in this story, and we won't see much of her, but just enough to see what happens when Judah goes down. Verse six, now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. How evil do you have to be for the Lord to take your life? This was pretty bad. Implication, this guy was extreme evil. Well, then Judah said to Onan, this is the second born, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And this began as a custom in the code of Hammurabi. And the custom was if a firstborn son died without having any children, then the secondborn son would be responsible to go in, marry the wife, take the, his widow, take her to himself, marry her, and bear children with her in the name of the brother to keep the family line continuing. Later it was called the Leverat or the Leverite marriage from the Latin word levir, which means husband's brother. <laughs> so the husband's brother now becomes the husband. God made this into Torah law. Interesting. Now pause for a moment. Why would the Lord do that? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse five. Let me read it to you. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is important to God. Verse seven, but if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. 
Well, then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and shall, and shall declare, thus it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. I love the word of God. This is God's law. And he shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed, or Bethalus Hanahal. So he gets a new name, sandal, Sandalus. And, and this is because he doesn't want to follow through with the Leverite marriage, this law of God. Why? Why is this so important? We're going to see it play out when we get to the book of Ruth, Lord willing, chapter four, verses five through eight. And you can read that story. It's just a four-chapter book, a beautiful romance of faithfulness and commitment and, and true love. You'll see it play out with Boaz as he desires to marry Ruth. And so we'll see this law come into effect. And God comes along and he codified what was that code of Hammurabi. He codifies it in Torah law. He says, this is good. I want you to do this thing. Why? Because it would protect and provide for women. God cares for his daughters. Need to understand that in those days, so long ago, women literally only had what their husbands had or their fathers had or their older brother had or their sons had. That women were cared for in that way and God is protecting and providing for his daughters to be sure that she has a husband and then that she can have a son so that she has on either side someone who's gonna care for her, look after her and provide for her in a very hostile world 3,800 years ago. God codified it for that reason. He also did it to secure the Israelite lineage. This is a big deal to God. You know, when we talk about abortion in our culture, we have zero concept of the family line and the disruption of that line when abortion happens. The Jewish people, I've, I've shared with you all before, the Jewish people have a view that if you abort one child, you kill an entire generation because that one child would have been father to children who would father children who would father children. This matters to God. Life matters to God. And so he writes this law in, taking care of his daughters, providing for the continuing line within the people of Israel in particular. And even in Jesus' day, people understood this law. Even in the first century, it was still adhered to or at least understood as far as the Bible, as far as Torah law was concerned. We recently read of a confrontation that Jesus had with a bunch of sad sack Sadducees. <laughs> they thought they could use this Leverite law to outwit Jesus. It is the classic story of a bride for seven brothers, and let me just read it to you one more time. We've heard it, but listen to this application. Matthew 22, verse 23 says, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking him, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Deuteronomy 25, verse five. 
Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, they asked, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. They are completely disingenuous. They don't even believe in the resurrection. They're just trying to mess with Jesus. But Jesus answered, said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. See, Jesus goes for the throat. He cuts right to the chase, explaining to these non-believers in resurrection that the greatest thing you can pass along a family line is resurrected life. Greatest gift that a father, a mother can pass along to a son or daughter is resurrected life that comes through faith in Jesus. The resurrection along the lineage to pass along faith that that child that would grow to one day be resurrected as we all hope to be. Man, God's got a plan and he wants that plan passed along fathers and mothers to sons and daughters. Resurrection is the plan. I'm not just saying this because Easter was on Sunday. I'll tell you, it's so much more than just a day to celebrate. Once a year, the spring equinox with colored eggs and chocolate bunnies. That's so superficial and has nothing to do with the reality of resurrection. We often say this, you know, as Christians, we don't celebrate Resurrection Sunday once a year. We celebrate it every day of our lives because we know our resurrection is coming by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The past resurrection of Jesus is the only future hope of this world. So Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain, obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, you may feel like we've strayed from the story of Judah, but we are in the line of Judah. And the reason why the line, the lineage of Judah is so vitally important is it leads us straight to Jesus and our hope of resurrection. And so when the Sadducees throw up this false Leverite law narrative at Jesus, trying to trap him into something they think they've outsmarted him, and he turns around and he says, you non-believers in resurrection, resurrection is everything. Resurrection is your only hope, and God is the God of the living, that is, those who are the resurrected. See, Peter says, this salvation, this promise, our resurrection is ready to be revealed in the last time. And that is where I am convinced we are. Tonight, right now, we are at the last 
of the last time. Not just the last time. Not just the last days or the end times, but at the end of the end times. Well, how much time do you think we have, Pastor? I don't know. I have no idea. A few more minutes? Will I even finish tonight before we go home? Boy, I hope not. Some of you are saying, yeah, me too. (laughs) Hey, we are in the end of the end days. We are seeing so much take place in the world all around us right now. Earth-shaking stuff. We are having life interrupted like never before that I can recall. God is at work here, my friends. Are you ready for the resurrection? If Jesus called tonight, would you go home with him? Now, Ur and Onan are a couple of messed up guys. In fact, Ur, so evil, God takes him out, right? His brother, Onan, is now called on to take his brother's place with Tamar. Go back to Genesis 38 and watch this. He defiantly, he selfishly disobeys. Verse nine, and this is where it gets a little, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, verse 10, so he took his life also. Okay, wait a minute. This is serious stuff. The Lord took Ur's life because he was evil. How evil? Pretty darn evil to have God take your life. And now Onan comes along and his life is taken by the Lord for doing this. For doing what? (laughs) What was so sinful that it was deserving of death? Some have used this as biblical judgment on, well, let's just say self-gratification. I'll try and make this PG-13. Some have used it to uh, say this is God judging this, you know, self-pleasuring act. Some say, well, it's, it's onanism. There's actually a word. Look it up. I'm not gonna define it for you tonight. Look it up. Onanism is a word coming from the name Onan, this this son of Judah. Here's what's going on. Onan is using Tamar for self-sexual gratification to the very last second, and then he's out. Verse nine gives the actual motive. It wasn't just about the sexual pleasure. It was in order not to give offspring to his brother. And that was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, you need to note this. This is not just a one-time event. The word when in verse nine, Onan knew the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, the word when should be translated whenever. That is, this was a persistent practice. He took her to himself. He took her to be his wife. And by the way, Tamar was not a whole lot older than Onan, maybe a couple or three years. Maybe not much at all. Who knows? The ages are not given. But they probably were still pretty close in age. He takes her, hey, I, I, can, I can, you know, get some fun out of this, but I'm not going to do my duty. Whenever he went into her, implying that he did a lot and he was using her And meanwhile, what's Tamar getting out of it? She's not even getting offspring. She's just getting used. 
And my friends, listen, this is pleasure with no commitment, no responsibility. It is pure sexual sinfulness or, or, or selfishness. And it's exactly how our culture does it. This is what our culture does. It's all about the personal pleasure, the one night stand, the first date, the sleeping with someone, getting what you want out of them, finding the satisfaction, finding even the comfort if that's your thing, and then out you go and you're done. No commitment, no responsibility, no follow through. My friends, that's not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is that two come together. God created pleasure. Yes, he created pleasure for and in marital sex. But listen, the very first command that God gave to humanity, Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. First thing he asked him to do, fill the earth and subdue it. God loves kids. God wants children. God's looking for those who would be resurrected. So as parents come together, as husband and wife come together, they become parents. That's part of the deal. But apparently, Judah didn't pass this on to his sons. And so Ur, the watchman, spiritually blind and evil. Onan, his name means strong, is morally weak. Numbers 26, verse 19 mentions them, says the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Now listen, to die in the land of Canaan, this was not a good thing. This was not like Abraham and Isaac who died and were buried at the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham owned within the land. So that land already belonged to him. This is two guys who are just buried somewhere out there in Canaan who never made it down to Joseph in Egypt, who never would then be part of the lineage that would return to the land victoriously, the promised land. No, they just, they just died in the land of Canaan. And note this, verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. Now at this point, they estimate maybe Shelah was 15, 16 years old. Tamar, maybe early 20s. So he needed to be of age, of marrying age, so a little bit older, they think, but still not too far off age-wise. So Judah says, you just remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Do you think Judah's gonna follow through? Think again. In fact, Judah apparently assumes Tamar is cursed. You can see by the language, he's worried. He's had two sons now die who were married to this woman. Maybe it's her fault. I'm not gonna give her to my youngest son. He'll be gone too. Sad. So Tamar, through no fault of her own, innocent in all of this, passed now to two brothers, both who have died. Now she's in limbo. Now she's just waiting for Shalah to grow up. But Judah doesn't intend to do right by her at all. And the story just gets worse. But verse 12 says, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Note that. Judah made ungodly choices, 
of ungodly friendship, in ungodly marriage, leading to ungodly children, and now what does he have? Two dead sons and a dead wife. And this is a pattern that we see in the Bible. In fact, it's a contrast, it's very clear in scripture. God's word always comes back to life or death. This is a life or death book, my friends. This is life or death proposition from God. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Isn't that great? What a marvelous promise. And then Jesus said further in the same chapter, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Life, that's God's offer to you. God's offer to me is life rather than death. Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on the earth. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory, life, resurrection. That's God's desire for you and for me, not death, but it's gonna be one or the other. I either choose Jesus and life or I choose my own way and death. And Judah, in this story, keeps setting his mind on things that are on the earth. He's now still hanging out with Hira, the Adulamite. Verse 12 continues, after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar. Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Watch this. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road. First of all, she's got a veil on. You know why harlots would put a veil over their faces in Canaanite culture? It made them look like a bride because the bride would wear a veil, as we already saw with, with Jacob and, and, and Rachel and Leah and that whole mess of a story. It was typical that the bride would come for the wedding night, come into the wedding, she would be veiled and then would go into the wedding night with the veil on. So prostitutes and, and hookers and harlots, they put a veil on because it made them look like a bride. It's what Satan does, it's a false bride. It's a lie. It's about wedding night pleasure, but again, no commitment, no accountability, no tie-in, no follow-through. Just the pleasure of the bride. And so she veils herself, which is what, again, the harlots did. Now, note this also, both Hittite and Assyrian law allowed the Leverite marriage to be carried out by a father-in-law. Incest. But they allowed it. If the father's 
son, if the father-in-law's son died, that he could then take his daughter-in-law into himself and bear children with her in the name of his son. So that's, that's how the Canaanite culture carried out this law. And Tamar may know that. She may be functioning off that principle. Well, if he's not gonna give me to his son Shalah, then he's gonna give me to himself. Completely okay in the culture of the day, completely fine with the Hittites and the Assyrians, but God does not approve incest, nor does he ever. Oh, but the story's here in chapter 38. Yeah, because that's what happened. But this is not approved by God. And what Tamar does here, dressing herself as a prostitute, is deceitful, it's incestuous, it's wrong. It is sexually immoral. However, <laughs> wow, I don't think I ever planned on saying it was sexually immoral, however, but listen, listen, before we judge her too harshly, Judah's behavior is worse. And it's worse than it e even may appear. You know why he's going up for uh, sheep shearing time? This was festival time. This was celebration time. This was party time up at Timnah. And so he and Hera, his bud, the Adulamite, they're heading up together. Kidner says sheep shearing was a festive time when sexual temptation would be sharpened by the Canaanite cult, which encouraged fornication as a form of fertility magic. That if you have sheep shearing going on and, and you want your sheep to be fertile and you want your sheep to be plentiful and you want your flocks to grow and you want your wealth to increase, go into a temple prostitute. And that's what we believe Judah thought he was doing. It wasn't just about sexual gratification, it was about idolatry. That's what's going on here. The word harlot, zonah, in the Hebrew means harlotry or idolatry. It's used for that as well. And we'll see the word, the phrase temple prostitute used twice down in verse 21 and, and 22. And it's Kedeshah, Kedeshah. It's a temple prostitute. It's a woman who goes in, veils herself, and she plays the role of a temple prostitute that a man could come in and sleep with to appease the gods and please the gods and, and get what he wants. Well, that's what's going on. He turned aside to her, verse 16, by the road. And he said, here now, let me come in to you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, therefore, well, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, well, what, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. And she's got him. Tamar sprung her trap. She now has, she now has Judah's seal, his cord, and his staff. And you might call these three things her prenatal insurance policy. She's holding on to these. What does this mean exactly? Well, the seal or the signet. We're not talking about a ring. Some translations of the Bible say that he gave her his signet, his cord and his staff, or his seal, cord and staff. So the seal or the signet probably wasn't a ring. It was cylindrical. So it was a small cylinder 
often used as a form of personal ID. If there was a business transaction, the cylinder would hang around the neck, the signet, and you would stamp the signet as part of the transaction. So it was personal ID, kind of like a driver's license. And then you've got the cord. The cord is worn around the neck, and it was symbolic of possession. Signet, cord, personal ID, Symbolic, this cord of possession, if it was gold or if it was some kind of metal chain that would hang around his neck, it would, it would symbol, uh, symbolize his, his possession. So, so one would be like the driver's license, the other one would be kind of like a Capital One card. And then you've got the carved staff, usually bearing the same markings of the seal, and it indicated the man's prestige. Tamar has got Judah's driver's license, his Capital One card, and the keys to his BMW. She's got him. All kidding aside, note what Judah just did. To go in for one night of momentary pleasure, he gave up everything that he had worked for. He gave up his personal identification. He gave up his possession. He gave up his prestige for momentary pleasure. That's what sin does. That's the lure that we get blinded to. We don't understand. It's momentary pleasure often resulting in a lifetime of regret. Temporary indulgence to lose yourself. And Judah loses himself here. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? He's just given up. This, this is unbelievable what he's just handed over for the momentary pleasure. Also note that the greatest temptations of the devil always have to be experienced immediately. It's always immediate. Give up these things now. You gotta do this right now. There, there's never time to process and think about it. Yet those who wait on the Lord Isaiah 40, 31, will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles and they will run and not get tired and they will walk and not become weary. Let me interrupt myself for a moment to ask, how are you doing right now with that? How's your patience? How is your waiting going in this season? I hear people freaking out We've got to get back. We've got to, this is not good. This is, it's been 30 days. It's been one month. People have had life interruptions for years. We're not talking about Nazi Germany here in the Holocaust. I'm not saying this hasn't been a challenge or a struggle or that it isn't a challenge or a struggle for you personally, but those who wait on the Lord, Best thing you can do in this season, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? I'll tell you what, he's changing some lives and it might not be done yet. And if there's someone who's gonna get saved next month because we go another month into this, so be it. If it will make an eternal difference, you know that's the plan God's working on, remember? Life, resurrection, trying to turn people around in this sinful, wicked world. If it needs more time, let there be more time. It doesn't matter what you and I are up to. What matters is what he's up to. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Well, verse 20, he turns into her. He gives everything over to her. She leaves, he leaves. 
Verse 20 says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, so here is helping out here, still involved with this thing, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he, he didn't find her. Hmm. He asked the men of the place saying, where's the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim? But they said, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. Well, Judah said, verse 23, well, let her keep them. Otherwise we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat. So I did my part. I fulfilled my part of the bargain, but you didn't find her. Ah, let her have them. It'll all blow over. What happens in Timnah stays in Timnah, right? That's one of fellow, just let it go. But the tables turn. And my friends, they always do. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. What happens in the secret, hidden, dark places of our lives never stay secret, hidden, and dark. They always emerge. Be sure, Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Note I didn't say that God is just waiting to pounce on your foolish behavior. No, the Bible says your sin will find you out. Your sin will reveal you. Sin has a way of doing that, betraying us and becoming realized in our lives. Galatians chapter six, verse seven, don't be deceived, Paul writes. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap, and here it is again, eternal life. Life by sowing to the spirit. Well, verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Here comes the word. Judah doesn't know though that he was the one who went into this harlot. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Unbelievable. What a sick, chauvinistic double standard. Oh, he could go into a prostitute. That's fine. But his daughter-in-law to play the harlot and now to become pregnant? By the way, this would make it a double murder if it was followed through. Judah still doesn't know it's Tamar, but his outburst reveals a, a deep pagan double standard. Let me read something to you here. This is out of Hosea. Hosea chapter four, understand God's perspective on this very thing. Hosea 4.13 says, they offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. And he's talking about the people of Israel engaging in temple prostitution, even the women. And you know what God says about that? I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes so the people without understanding are ruined. What does that mean? It means God is saying, I'm not gonna lay this on the daughters and let the men off scot-free. You're all messed up. <laughs> Everybody's ruined by this. It's not just one as opposed to the other. 
So Judah says, bring her out, burn her up. Hosea tells us that the pagan sexual idolatry of Canaan deeply affected Israel a thousand plus years later in the eighth century BC. Verse 25, continuing, says, it was while she was being brought out that she, that is Tamar, sent to her father-in-law, Judah, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And again, she's got him. She's got him. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she's more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not have relations with her again. Tamar was concerned with one thing. Now she goes about it in an unquestionably immoral way, but her focus is singular. And that is her right as matriarch of Judah's eldest line. Having married the firstborn son in the first place, she is in the position she should have the firstborn of Judah. She has that right. And again, without husband or son, she had nothing in that culture. Living as a widow in her father's house, this is the desperate move of an indomitable spirit on the part of Tamar. You could say she pulled off an amazing coup de father-in-law. But listen, get this, understand. What Tamar did in this underhanded way to provide for herself, to pull off this coup, man, contrast the impurity of her behavior with the indomitable spirit of purity that we will see in Joseph in the very next chapter. See what happens with Tamar, it's out of her control. She has no power, no ability to make any change, no way that she can deal with it. And so she comes up with this plan, she hatches this scheme. Guess what? We will see on Sunday, Joseph loses all control, has no power, no ability to change his circumstances, nothing he can do to deal with it. But rather than hatching some ungodly, sexually immoral scheme, Joseph remains pure. Joseph trusts the Lord. Joseph follows after the Lord God. And so between chapter 38 and chapter 39, we can honestly say Tamar's sexual immorality is seen for what it is. By the way, so is Judah's. No one's right here. No one's good here. Judah makes that interesting statement. She's more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shalah. And yeah, he sinned big. Multiple ways in this chapter, so did Tamar. And God is no respecter of persons. Sin is sin. It's all messed up here. Listen, we can be like Tamar. We can, by all rights and self-protection, try to force justice or fairness by our own hands or, and I'm speaking to this season, we can wait on the Lord to do it. We can demand our way, our rights, our privileges, our liberties, or we can pray and let God be God and ask him to move. Lamentations 3.25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. We'll see Joseph do that. 
It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord, Lamentations 3.26. And by the way, Jeremiah wrote that while he was watching Jerusalem smolder after it was razed to the ground by Babylon. Jeremiah says, it's good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. You wanna talk about life interrupted? Try being a Jew in Babylon. Try being a Jew in Jerusalem, 586 BC. When your entire world is flipped upside down and crushed and you are now deported to a different country to live a different life than you ever thought you would live. You think we have it bad now? Try being a Jew in AD 70 when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem again and completely upended any semblance of Jewish life. Think we have it tough? Maybe we do. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. What would have happened if Tamar had not played this game of a harlot? What would have happened if she had waited on the Lord? I don't know. We never will know because she didn't wait. Hebrews chapter six, verse 11 says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God's got some promises for you this season. This season. You realize that? God's got something he's working in your life personally. You that, that, that's listening, same with me. I'm hearing these words, me, me myself, and I. <laughs> I'm listening to me too. And I am realizing God's got some promises for me this season. Will I wait on the Lord to receive them? Or will I rush ahead and try to get things done my way, frustrated and angry and, man, I know I keep beating this drum. But brothers and sisters, God is at work right now. Jesus is doing something right now in your life, and in mine. Jesus said, John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And he said that on the, on the Sabbath day. We're at work right now, so you can rest. Be diligent, the Hebrew writer says, to enter into that rest, because God's at work. Don't miss it. Wait for it. Seek him, because you know what? <laughs> and I'm so thankful for this. God's grace is greater than my impatience. God's grace is greater than your impatience. And so verse 27 tells us, watch this. It came about at that time, she, that is Tamar, was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. My friends, Tamar got her babies. She went about it all wrong. She sinned. She fell short of the glory of God. She was sexually immoral. She played the harlot. And God gave her her babies anyway. That's grace. She did not deserve it. She did not earn it. But she received her sons. Interesting. Judah. What about Judah? Who dives deep as he goes down in this chapter. What had happened to Judah? He lost two self-indulgent evil sons. And guess what now? He gets two new sons. That's grace. That is God's grace, which is so much greater than our impatience, greater than our sin, as God now restores Judah's 
posterity. Watch this, verse 28. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth that one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, but it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So his name, so he was named Perez, which means breach. He's the first breach birth in the Bible. And verse 30, afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. What a breach you've made for yourself, they say of little Perez who ends up being now the firstborn, even though he really wasn't the first one coming out. See how it's happened again. Secondborn takes first position. This happens over and over in the scripture. The one who comes second ends up being first. But this is a, a little Hebrew word play. When she says, what a breach you have made for yourself, in the Hebrew, it's paratsa parats. Paratsa parats, you breached a breach. And again, parets means breach or one who breaks through. And in this, now stay with me just a few more minutes here. I wanted to do chapter 39. We're gonna do this instead, so just listen up. Another beautiful biblical pattern emerges here in the shape of grace. I told you when we started, I would explain a little more of why chapter 38 or why I believe chapter 38 is here and Joseph's story goes on hold. Joseph in 37, Joseph in 39, Judah in this mess with Tamar in chapter 38. Why is this here? And I mentioned before, well, there's literary suspense as Joseph's on hold. There's also tribal lineage. Now we're gonna find that Perez becomes the firstborn of Judah and will be considered that in every genealogy, genealogical lineage given now. He becomes in first position Perez. And I mentioned the contrast here, obviously, of Judah's and Tamar's uh, carnality to Joseph's purity, but there's more. Note this, just two things. Number one, chapter 38 introduces four surprising names right into the line of Messiah, the line of Jesus. It's all part of what we could call a scarlet thread that is woven throughout the Bible. It shows up again and again, that scarlet, that, that thread of scarlet. We will see this happen many times through the Hebrew scriptures. But here, the scarlet thread is a thread that connects Perez and Zerah, not to their birth order, not to each other, not to their mother Tamar, or even to their father Judah, but it's a scarlet thread that connects them directly to Jesus, the Messiah. And what's marvelous here, and it's really embedded in the very names of these two boys, their scandalous story that results in their birth by their mom and their, what would they be, grandpa? I mean, it's just sick. And yet this, this scandalous story reveals in the names of Perez and Zerah the greater scandal of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, note that a scarlet thread is tied to the wrist. Does that not remind you of blood pouring from the wrists of Jesus as he was crucified? And more than that, Jesus, who's born into evil and sinful humanity, but then he's crucified. It's almost like that first life, he, he dies and he's laid in the 
womb of the tomb, and then there's this resurrection miracle that happens, and like Perez, Jesus breached the breach. That is, Jesus broke out as the first fruits from among the dead. But like Zira, oh, I didn't tell you what Zira's name means. It means rising. Rising. As in the rising of the sun at the early dawn. And, and that's why I believe that both boys' names are listed in the genealogy, the messianic gene, genealogy of, of Jesus, that Perez, he breached a breach at the rising that they describe here now the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you understand why I spent so much time talking about resurrected life. Because these two boys in their birth describe the resurrection of Jesus. And then the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter one, verse three, says Judah was the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar. Now that's a remarkable statement there. It's a genealogy, Rick. No, no, it's, it's more than that. It's an amazing statement. Judah, first of all, that he's even mentioned in the line of Jesus after chapter 38 is remarkable. That's grace. But note this. He's the father of Perez, who now is firstborn, takes first position, and Zerah by Tamar. And Zerah should not be there. See, the fact is, Zerah is listed, and he's the only second born who is listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Luke doesn't even list him in Luke chapter three. Only the genealogy given by Matthew in Matthew chapter one includes not just Perez firstborn, which is normal, but Zerah, the second born, he shouldn't be there, but he's there. Why? He's part of the story. And by the grace of God, Judah has two sons through Tamar, Perez, Breakthrough, Zira, rising. Both are named in this genealogy because the Spirit is painting a prophetic portrait with these two boys, and it takes both of them to portray Jesus Christ breaking forth and rising in the dawn of resurrection. But it's not only Judah who shouldn't be there, and Perez and Zira who is unique in even being there, but it's also Tamar that she's listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. How marvelous is that? And by the way, she's not the only woman of sordid past who's in that genealogy. We'll talk about others later. But Tamar's lifted up and listed in this name, this listing of names among names for one reason alone, same reason Judah, same reason Perez, same reason Zira, Tamar is there by the grace of God. Amazing grace. And, and listen to Jacob as he prophesies over Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse eight, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Hey, that's not talking about Judah. <laughs> that is talking about Jesus in the line of Judah. In fact, he is the lion of Judah. Verse nine says, Judah is a lion's whelp. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. And that speaks of none other than Jesus. And then Jacob prophesies further over Judah saying, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Shiloh means whose right it is. Until one comes who has the right to rule. Well, who has the right to rule? The one who broke through at the rising of the dawn. None other than Jesus. And it's an amazing prophecy, and we'll spend more time on it when we get over to Genesis chapter 49. But there's one last thing I want to tell you tonight about this pause between chapter 37 and 39. Why is chapter 38 inserted here? And this is something that has real-time application for us right now. Chapter 38 reveals a desperate need for departure. That is, the dark influence of Canaan's land is now being seen in and throughout Jacob's family. They are getting infected with Canaanite paganism and Canaanite behavior. The so-called rude interruption of chapter 38 simply intensifies the necessity of getting Israel and his family out of carnal Canaan and safely to the place that God is at this time during chapter 38 working on, preparing. God is at work in Joseph and in Egypt getting it ready, so to speak, for Jacob's family to come out of Canaan. They had to get out of Canaan because the sin of Canaan hadn't reached its full yet. See that in Genesis 15. The sin of the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the flashlights and all the ites had not reached its zenith yet. God had to get his people out before that sin would even overtake them. And what does he do? He takes them out. He's gonna send them into the land of Goshen and tuck them away for 400 years. And he does it to save Israel. It's an amazing escape. End times parallel. Israel today is heavily and dangerously influenced by the secular world. I know that by being there. I've seen it. Israel as a nation has done marvelous things. And God continues to bless his people in truly miraculous and supernatural ways. But the majority of the nation of Israel remains secular to this day, and that secularism is getting pretty sinful. The sexual immorality, what's going on in the land, even in the streets of Jerusalem, it makes me shudder to think what has happened there, what they've tried to promote there, and what is promoted all over the streets of Tel Aviv and in other places of Israel. My friends, God is again gonna get Israel out to a place he has prepared. Revelation chapter 12, six says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. It's the last half of a seven year tribulation. Do you realize what's about to happen here in Genesis? A seven year famine. And God's gonna feed his people and protect his people through the seven-year famine, but he's keeping them in the world. He's taking them down to Egypt to do it. 
there's a remarkable parallel. And those of you who wanna work through these things and think about them, there's more to find there. But let me give you one final parallel as part of this desperate need for departure. Down in Egypt, as we're on pause, behind the scenes, God is purifying Joseph. Even as he prepares for himself a people for salvation, people who are gonna get saved because Joseph's there. And I'm not just talking about Israel. I'm talking about all the known world around Egypt and Canaan. People will flood down there to get food and provision and be saved because of God at work in Joseph. And if I can make this parallel, right now, Jesus is purifying his church in this season to what? To finally be his spotless bride. He wants a righteous church. He wants a pure and spotless bride, washed with the water and the word, purified as a bride to himself. And he's doing it right now in this season. In the same way that he was preparing Joseph in all purity, he is calling his church to purity. Even as God is preparing the entire world for the wrath to come. But listen, while that wrath is coming in it, there will be a great soul harvest. Many people will yet be saved. So my question to you is this. What are you gonna do with this isolating time? How are you gonna use it? You gonna whine? You gonna complain? You gonna grumble, fret, fear, fight back? What are you gonna do with the time God's put before us? Can I make a suggestion and then I'm done tonight? If you go back to verse one of chapter 38, note this, that Judah departed. Judah went down. Judah went down. That word departed, as I noted before, means to go down, to fall down, even to fall flat on your face. There's another word for that, and that is to prostrate yourself. It's what Jesus did in the garden. He fell on his face before the Lord. Listen to me. The name Judah means praise. How much better would it have been in this story if Judah had gone down on his knees in repentance for selling off Joseph? How much better if Judah had prostrated himself on his face in worship and thanksgiving? You could almost translate it this way, praise bows down. Praise goes down in humility before the Lord. Praise goes down on the knees, down on the face, down in prayer before our God. If you want to move through this season and hear and understand and receive the promises that God has for you, praise bows down. First Peter chapter five, verse six, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, we bow down before you tonight. And we do so offering up our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving in this moment for what you are doing right now. And Father, I do not pretend to fully understand or comprehend it. I don't know why this is happening the way it's happening. I don't know how you're gonna bring us through this or what the end game is gonna be. I do know ultimately we're gonna come home. But I don't know if that's 
sooner as opposed to later. I don't know if that's tonight as opposed to next year or the year after. I don't know if we're gonna return to normal, Father, or if this is part and parcel what the world's gonna be like. I don't know any of that. But Lord, I take greatest comfort in knowing you. I know Jesus, the same yesterday and today and forever. And so our praise, Lord, bows down. We bow down to worship you, to thank you for life, to repent of the sin and rebellion and the wickedness of our world, of our culture, even within the church, Lord, and personally, we bow down to praise you. Lead us, Father. We wait for you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.